be in Psalm 51 today, uh, Psalm 51, but there's a, there's a lot today that's going to kind of connect with what we talked about last, uh, last week um, in, in the last sermon. Uh, so I'll try and I'll try and make help make the connections for you. But if there's something that you don't get, then it's probably because you didn't listen last week. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, all right. So uh, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 today. If you remember last week, the the sermon was on First Samuel 15, uh, and we looked at the the life of King Saul, and we we analyzed some of the things that uh, he was saying and doing that that kind of showed that even though he would argue to the contrary, that he would have argued to the contrary, he demonstrated that he had no real relationship with God. We were able to see many of the signs in his life that exposed his fake love for God, and we saw that most of them, many of them, were directly related to his response to the sin in his life. And preparing for the sermon last week, uh, it was really convicting for me. And it exposed many areas in my life where my, where my discipleship honestly looks more like someone who is more interested in being seen as a disciple than actually being one. That is especially true when thinking about my motivation for, for responding rightly to sin in my life. I, I noticed some stuff in my life that um, was troubling. And so, so it was hard for me. Um, and this week, though, what I want to do is I want to I kind of flip a good chunk of what we talked about last week and talk about a right way, a right way then to respond to sin in our lives. So if you remember in Samuel's initial rebuke of Saul, way back in chapter uh, 13 of 1 Samuel, he told Saul that God was going to replace him with someone after his own heart, with a man after God's own heart. And, and then according to what Samuel actually says later, it's going to be a man who is better than him, a man who's better than Saul, a man who's after God's own heart. And we know that that man is David. Uh, we know now that man is David. But, but based on the story we just read out of 2 Samuel, that, that seems a little iffy. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem like that might be the case. So uh, the comment, so, so what we know then is that if we see this sin, definitely some serious sin in David's life, like we saw in Saul's life, then what we can know is that the comment that Samuel made to Saul, that a man after God's own heart is going to replace him, a man that's better than him, that isn't indicating that Saul's, Saul's replacement is going to be a guy who doesn't fall into major sins. That's not what that indicated. The difference isn't seen there. The difference is seen in the response to sin. So to illustrate this, go, go ahead and look here in, in 2 Samuel, uh, now chapter 12, right after the story that we just read, ending with what David had done, displeased the Lord. We see that um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors and your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So what we see here is that after David's great sin, God sends Nathan to confront David about this sin. And David, finally, after this confrontation, admits his sin. And just, just think about the fact that he has been living with all of this sin for months because the child is born at this time. So it's, it's been months and months. The child has already been born. And more than likely, he's gone through this whole time of up, almost a year, probably, of, of going about his normal life, worshiping just like he always worshiped, doing his normal practices. When we see that and think about that, how could this man, after God's own heart, commit such heinous sins and then go so long without doing anything about it? That doesn't make sense. And then after remembering back what we looked at last week with 1 Samuel 15, we should have even a little bit more concern about this situation because uh, remember what happens after Samuel confronts Saul at, at first, we do see him doing, remember, all the, the blame shifting and, and making excuses. Uh, but then after Samuel says what he does in, in verses 22 and 23, in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 15, we hear Saul say, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their words. What I want us to see here is the similarities between the two stories up until this point. Neither of the kings seem to see their sin until God sends a prophet to confront them. And upon being confronted, both men acknowledge their sin. In fact, actually, with Saul, it's, it's a little more detailed than David is. He gives the reason. He says, I, I feared man. I, I feared the people. And it's actually for Saul been a much shorter time between the sin and the confrontation. 
There's a lot of similarity in their responses up to this point. And in fact, based on that, you could make the case that Saul might be in a little better situation. So if you found yourself, as I did, a little discouraged after last week, seeing many similarities between yourself and Saul, take heart because David had similarities also. The issue is not whether or not you have sinned, although it is certainly true that those who are really in Christ will go on to sin less and less because they continue to grow more and more in holiness as they grow in their understanding of who God is and who they are. That, that is true. And the issue, isn't, uh, the issue between these men isn't only acknowledging your sins. It's not only acknowledging your sins also, although, again, I, I do want to be very clear that acknowledging your sins is an absolutely essential element to being a faithful disciple of Jesus. There is no way to be a Christian in any real sense of the word if you don't clearly confess your sins. That is necessary. Even though there are all of these similarities, we know that one of these men is a man after God's own heart, and the other is a man whose reign as king brought sorrow to God. In the story of Saul from last week, we were able to see that uh, what was going on in Saul's heart from his responses and, and his actions. Thankfully, thankfully for us, God is concerned enough that we clearly see what is going on in the heart of David, that he has included Psalm 51 in sacred scripture. And you can turn back to Psalm 51 now. He wants us to see this. This is, Psalm 51 is easily, easily the most well-recognized of all the penitential psalms, probably one of the most well-recognized in the Bible. And uh, we're told here, we're told here at the beginning of Psalm 51, if you look, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we're told there at the beginning of the psalm the reason and the occasion that this psalm was written. That little line I just read is, is actually, that's above verse 1 in most of your Bibles. That's, that's part of the Hebrew text. That is, that is there. It's part of sacred scripture. Um, it, you, you needed to read it. So, so knowing that it is scripture, we know that when David was reflecting about his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and with the murder of Uriah, when he was reflecting about that, we know that he wrote down these words. These words. So this is a big deal because when Saul is told by Samuel the Lord's pronouncement for him, remember what he does? He, he grabs Samuel and he begs Samuel to, to honor him in front of the people. That's his concern. And when David is told by Nathan the Lord's pronouncement concerning his sin, this is his response. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So last week we saw six characteristics of fraudulent discipleship, if you remember. Uh, The last one was based on Saul's fake repentance and how the the fake repentance of Saul exposed who he really was. So kind of coming out of that last point from last week, I have have two kind of main points for this sermon and then a bunch of sub points. So the two points, two main points are what true repentance knows and what true repentance desires. What true repentance knows what true repentance desires. So first I want to talk about what true repentance knows. And I want to talk about two, two main subpoints here. Number one, it knows a right understanding of our own sin. A right understanding of our own sin. The first thing we need to see about our sin is that it is a big deal. It's a big deal. In Hebrew poetry, repetition is a point of emphasis. And if you notice, if you look at the bottom of verse 1, right on through the middle of verse 4, you see seven lines in a row that use some sort of synonym for sin. You see that? Blot out my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin. Uh, Against you and you only have I sinned, done what is evil. Seven times he, he lists these things. It's, it's repetition. It's important to see how important David sees his sin, how big of an issue he sees it as. And he goes on to mention it a couple more times. Through, through, he mentions sin quite a few more times throughout the psalm. 
A couple times in verse 5, a couple times in verse 9. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. That's what we need to see here. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. And we also see here another aspect of a right understanding of sin is understanding that it's something that belongs to you. Your sin belongs to you. You take ownership of it. It is, it is yours to take the blame for. Remember last week we saw how Saul's first response was to blame other people for his sin? That was his, that was his first response. And we see this even, even from the beginning of history. I think we mentioned this last week also. Even from the beginning of history, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they're confronted on their sin, Adam blames Eve. Remember, he blames Eve. But in his blaming of Eve, he also blames God. He says, that this woman that you gave me, this woman that you put here, Remember, we talked about, and that works well because we talked about how any effort to blame others is also an effort to blame a sovereign God. The sovereign God who has put you in the situation that you are in, if you're blaming him for the situation, you're either denying his sovereignty or you're blaming it on him. But look what David does here when he's talking about sin. He's, those first five times he mentions it, he says, he, he, he calls it his. He takes ownership of it. He says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my iniquity. He takes complete ownership of it. He doesn't talk about it in, in general terms. He doesn't say the issues I'm dealing with in my life or my weaknesses or the struggles you know, that I have calls it what, is, what it is, he calls it sin, and he credits it, credits it to himself. And this points to another understanding about our sin that David has, and that, that it comes from us. Not only does it belong to us, but we are the source of it. This is, this is so important. Acknowledging who we are, it's, it's almost another point. It's the things you need to understand about when you express true repentance is, is who you are, what sin is, and who God is. So, but I'm just including it in this subpoint. Uh, but acknowledging who you really are before the Lord. So if you look then again at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It is, it is who you are from the beginning. You are born with a sinful nature. When I sin, the origin of that sin is coming from me. It's coming from me. David here is affirming uh, what we call the doctrine of original sin, that, uh, that, that we or that he sins, when he sins, he's, in, he's acting in accordance to who he really is. He's not making that mistake that we witnessed Saul make last week of looking. Remember, he was looking for a source of his sin outside of himself. He was trying to find someplace else to point to. We don't see David doing that here. I sin because I'm a sinner. That's who I am. He's, I'm not a godly king who just happened to sin. We are not good people who sin from time to time. We are sinners who act in accordance with who we really are. It's not just an external problem of sinful actions, but an internal problem of a corrupt and of a rebellious heart. 
David understands that his sin isn't primarily a problem of his outward action. It is a problem of an inward reality that doesn't desire truth. That's what he mentions in verse 6. You delight in truth in the inward being. That's what he delights in. And he knows that, uh, understands that his sin is a problem, uh, isn't a problem from the outward. It's a problem that, that that's not what he's desiring on the inside. The sinful actions that he is guilty of really express a sinful and corrupt heart. And he understands that. And he also understands, he also understands just what it is that this sin does to him. You can tell by all of the descriptive words he uses. He understands that it makes him filthy, that it's a stain that makes him unfit, that it exposes him as imperfect and unworthy of anything. Thus, it is a, something that must be purged from him, something that, must be, that he must be cleansed of, something that he must be cleaned of. It must be removed for him to have any part with God, for him to ever be able to stand before God, it has to be removed, it has to be cleansed. And this leads us to, to one of the most important things we need to understand about our sin, and that is who our sin is against. Who our sin is against. Sin is not just mistakes that we make, it's not just wrong things that we do in general. Sin is not just violations of some unseen human consensus of what is good and what is bad. That is not what sin is. It's a violation of the law of the holy God of the universe. They're transgressions against the perfect standard that he has appointed. Sin is so bad because it is evil in the sight of a righteous God. That is why David can say, against you and you only have I sinned. That's why he can say that with integrity. Because that's a pretty bold statement considering where Uriah is right now, right? It pretty bad sin against Uriah, I would say, and Bathsheba and his people. But he knows, what David knows, what he's expressing here, he's not minimizing his sin against Uriah. He is, he's showing the greatness of his sin against God. He knows that what ultimately makes his sinful actions reprehensible is because they were violations against God's law. Because it was God, not Uriah, who said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And it was God, not Uriah, who said, Thou shalt not commit murder. It was not Uriah who declared these, these things. I'm guessing he was in, in agreement with it, but it wasn't him who declared those things. This is God's law that he is violating. This leads, this understanding of what sin really is, of who it is against, leads to the, to the, second, uh, the second mark of what true repentance knows. True repentance has a right recognition of who God is. It has a right recognition of who God is. 
David knows he is guilty before a holy God. He knows that whatever God thinks is what is right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what, what he thinks. It's, it's about what God says. By saying God is blameless, where he says he's blameless in verse 4, he says he's blameless in, God is blameless in his judgment. Um, by saying that, he is saying he understands that whatever God does is right. And, and that, that he has no ground to stand on when it comes to whatever it is he sees God doing. And so think about what he's affirming there based on what he was just confronted with, what Nathan just told him and what we just read. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 12, Nathan tells David that because of his sin, there's going to be all kinds of evil and horrible things that happen in his family and his son that, he's, that his uh, new wife Bathsheba has just given birth to will die. And our normal reaction to that would be, that seems a bit harsh and that, that doesn't really make sense. But with David's admission here that God is blameless, He's affirming that he has a right understanding of God that the, and that the earth is his, and he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. David is essentially saying, your judgments, God, are right. Therefore, if you say my son is going to die and I disagree with that in some way, then the fault lies with me, or I'm the one in the wrong because all your ways are blameless, even the ones I don't understand. And it means that, that we understand that God is perfectly just and that we don't even understand it. We don't even understand what justice really is. We don't understand it in its purity as God understands it. Our understanding of justice is an, is an imperfect understanding as much as we can handle from what God has revealed to us. A definition, uh, our definition of justice completely revolves around the perfect character of God who is the author of justice. So when you understand that you don't understand justice rightly, and you know you can't appeal to justice, you have to do what David does, and that's appeal to mercy. Appealing to the mercy of God also is a demonstration that David has a right understanding of who God is. Understanding how desperately you and I need the mercy of God demonstrates that we know and understand how holy God is. You don't, because you don't plead for mercy. You don't plead for mercy if you can make a case for your innocence in some way, or if you can say something that makes it sound like things aren't quite as bad as they seem, or if you can make it sound like what happened isn't really about you or isn't really your fault. You don't plead to mercy if you can argue for many of those angles. But when we see sin for what it really is and see God for who he is, our only hope is mercy. Our only hope is mercy. If you're thinking of this like in a courtroom type of setting, how we generally see this when we're talking about these things, we have to see that we don't even have a case. It's like being on trial for murder, and the one you murdered was the judge's son, and the judge watched you do it, and the members of the jury are also the family of the judge's son, and they also watched you do it, and your attorney also knows you did it, and he wants you to pay for it also. 
We're in an even worse state than that in our sin when we come before a holy God because we've aggressively lived lives sinning against him. And this God is the one whom our crime is against. And he is the judge and he is the jury and he is the perfect witness and the one who will be doing the punishing. What is your only hope in that situation? Your only hope is mercy. It's all you can do, all you can offer. I have no case to make. I have no defense. You know all things, and it is against you that I have sinned. Have mercy on me. That is what David is saying. Not only do we need to understand the holiness of God and his standard, and therefore how much we desperately need his mercy, but we also need to understand that he will give us mercy because he is a God of mercy and steadfast love. We can expect mercy from God. We can expect him to act in steadfast love because mercy and steadfast love are his character. That's what David says here in the, in the, in the first verse. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. They're attributes that are inseparable from him. And so many today reject the God of the Old Testament. They wrongly separate him from Christ. They say blasphemous things along the lines of, yeah, Jesus is, is great and he was all loving and stuff and we do, we'd all do a lot better job if we all acted like Jesus more. But the God of the Old Testament is a monster. When you see what he did. When they say stuff like that, I'm sure you've heard stuff like that. I've heard it frequently. When they say stuff like that, they're missing a couple of big points. Uh, first, they're forgetting about uh, how often Christ spoke of eternal hell for those who reject him. And they clearly don't see the returning King Jesus from Revelation 19 who dispatches all of those who are in rebellion against him. But they also, they also, more relevant to what we're talking about, they also have no idea how bad sin is and therefore how much mercy from this God they have already experienced in their life. Every person who says these type of things can only say them while they are experiencing the mercy of God on an unbelievable scale in that moment. That should actually be very obvious to us when we think about it. His mercy is so plentiful that we don't even notice it. It's that abundant that it's always going on, it's always happening, and we're generally not even noticing it. On a Friday, Travis and I were talking about some of the we're kind of getting discouraged talking about some of the rampant sins that flood our land and that infest the majority of our culture and are in so many of our churches and just just everywhere and how disgusting it all is and, and how most of them are even celebrated in our culture. And in light of what we know about how holy God is, <laughs> the only explanation for it getting that bad 
is that we live in a country that is in a constant state of receiving the mercy of God. And also, unfortunately, in a constant state of taking that mercy for granted. If God for just just one second ceased to exercise mercy, if he just stopped doing it for one second, all of humanity would be vanquished in an instant. Truly, he is a God of abundant mercy. And we should be reminded of that every time we take a breath. And he's a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And another important thing that we have to know about God is that he has power. That he has the, that, that he has the power to do what we need him to do. He is an all-powerful God, and that's good because there's something that we need him to do for us that only an all-powerful God can. Not only is he a God of mercy and love, but he also has the power to apply that mercy to save us. This is what David recognizes here. I have, he's saying, I have all of these sins. They're all my fault. They've earned me a just punishment. I can do nothing about any of it. But look what he says. In this, he has, notice that, that God is the understood subject in all of these statements he makes. He says, blot out my transgressions. So you blot out my transgressions. In Isaiah 43, 25, uh, God tells us, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. So he is the one who can do this. He does it for his own namesake to bring glory to himself by showing that he takes pleasure in demonstrating his mercy by doing what no one else can do, which is to blot out our sins. So, so David says, you, Lord, Blot out my transgressions. You wash me thoroughly. You cleanse me from my sin. You purge me with hyssop, and then I will be clean. Hyssop was like a plant that they used back then, and to, to, they used it to sprinkle blood over the Passover lamb, and it was also used uh, in the ritual with a person who had a skin disease. And in other various rituals, it was used to essentially... Um, help to cleanse something or make the pronouncement that something is clean. So David is saying, you, God, have the, the, the power to make that pronouncement that I'm clean. You, Lord, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The, the point here is that you recognize and believe that the removal of your sins, the removal of your sins is an act that no man can accomplish. We have no hope of accomplishing it. It takes the power of an omnipotent God. That's how serious, that's how severe it is. David knows that his sin problem is so great that only God can do something about it. There is no hope, no hope for our sinful state outside of him. And this is what should cause our joy and appreciation for who God is to exceed anything that David can even comprehend to this point, because the thing that he longed for, for God to, to blot out his sins, to cleanse him, to make him as, as white as snow, he didn't know how that could be possible. How does a holy God who sees my wretched sinfulness so clearly and a just God blot out my sin, how can, how can he make my sin no more? 
David knows that God is the one who has to do it because he's the only one who has the power to do it. But he doesn't yet know how that is accomplished. What David worshipped God for in principle, we can worship him because of the revealed truth of the gospel. We now see and know the absolutely astonishing miracle that takes place at the cross. This is where we see God's perfect justice, mercy, loving kindness, and power all come together in an unbelievable event in human history that makes real for David the salvation that he desperately longed for. And pray, praise God, because we were born and born again on this side of the cross, and we can worship God now with a clarity that would have blown David's mind. Imagine how David would respond in this psalm if he knew how God would fulfill his promise to David to establish his throne for eternity demonstrating his loving kindness by sending his own son to be born out of David's own line in the incarnation, a descendant that was both fully God and fully man, one who lived a life that was perfectly obedient to God, who never had to offer any of these type of words about his sin and transgressions as his forefather David had to because he was blameless in those obedience. And showing his infinite mercy, God sent his own son to the cross in our place, revealing in that moment his perfect justice by pouring out all of his wrath towards our sins on him, emptying the cup of his wrath on him, demonstrating his omnipotent power also by being able to absorb all of that wrath in that moment. And then, then showing mercy and loving kindness beyond what David could have possibly imagined by imputing on us the righteous life of Jesus Christ, imputing that onto all of those whom he calls to himself, all of those who place their trust in this amazing act of God in the gospel. This amazing demonstration of mercy, of the justice, the power, and the love of God that accomplished for us what David longs for here, the blotting out of our sins, the washing that makes us whiter than snow. An understanding of this truth, understanding of this truth then leads us kind of naturally into the, the next section, because once we understand who God is and what he's done for us, we'll long to know him more. Nothing else in, in life could possibly compare to drawing close to this God. So these are all things, these things, these are the things we need to realize uh, in repentance when we need to be rightly confessing who we are, rightly confessing how awful our sin is, and have an understanding of who God really is. That is what we need to know in repentance. But, but that by itself is not repentance because repentance requires action. It's not just confessing sin, but turning from it and heading in another direction. So now I want to 
look at what true repentance desires, what true repentance desires to do. I have six quicker subpoints here. It desires, number one, it desires restoration. True repentance desires restoration, a right fellowship with God. We see that all throughout verses 8 through 12 in Psalm 51. One who is truly repentant doesn't just want their sins forgiven and doesn't just want to be made clean. Those are great and those are good. As wonderful as that is and as much as we need it, we don't merely long for just that. We want the joy that comes from knowing him and having that that close relationship with him once again. There's this this sweet relationship, the sweet relationship where we receive joy and gladness from the Lord, but but it it is cut off from the crushing guilt of being caught in our sins. That's what David is talking about, the fact that when he wasn't repenting, he felt as if his his bones had been crushed and broken by God over this guilt. He's being kept in this state from, from hearing the joy and gladness that God's people should be hearing. We know this happens when we sin and when we're not repentant of our sin because because David is saying he wants it to happen again. He wants to hear it again. So there was a time when he was feeling it, and now he's not. This is what happens, and you've probably felt it too, when we try and read the Word or listen to a sermon or read a book that's gospel-centered, but there's sin in our life that we're not repenting of. There's just a disconnect, Right? There's just a disconnect. It's, it's like it's not, it's not penetrating us like it needs to be and like it used to. There was a time when we would, you know, go to the Word or come to church, and there's this sweet fellowship that we can remember that we're cut off from when we refuse to repent of sin. And if we stay in it, and this is the dangerous thing, if we stay in it long enough, we begin to forget how wonderful that was. And he says, not to cast him from his presence. David says not to cast him from his presence. Again, showing he longs not to be only forgiven by God, but, but to be with God. He asks God not to take his Holy Spirit from him, which is not, not something that we worry about in the same sense, um, because we as believers, we know we're, we're sealed with the Spirit. He is a deposit that guarantees our salvation, and he is, he is never actually removed from those who are in Christ But in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit coming on certain people uh, for certain tasks, assisting them and helping them. And we know that it even came upon Saul. We know that even the Holy Spirit came upon Saul for a while before God removed it after he disobeyed. But here we see a huge difference between Saul and David. Remember when Saul was desperate He was desperate in the end for Samuel to come back with him and to honor him before the people. He wanted Samuel to do it so that he would give the illusion that God was still with him. That's what he cared about. He wanted the people to see Samuel with him so that he would give the sense that God was still with him. And here we see that David, 
doesn't seem likely to even want to the role of king apart from God being with him. While Saul just wanted the people to think that God was with him, and it didn't really matter to him if he actually was. So that's what when we when we see this in here, when he's talking about the whole not removing the Holy Spirit from him, it's talking about longing for that that relationship. That being with God. Like none of this other stuff in life matters if I don't have that. This is just uh, so huge. This is a mark of true repentance that shows that the one who is truly repentant would much rather deal with their sin than try and persuade everyone around them that they're doing just fine without God or that they're doing just fine in their relationship with God. They'd much rather, much rather be truly repentant than give a show. They want a real relationship with God. They want the joy that comes from his salvation, whatever that might mean when it comes to getting other people involved in our life. People who demonstrate true repentance have no interest in persuading people that they have it all together when they don't. They invite anything in that will help them to be restored to the joy of his salvation. They want God. They want the true joy of knowing him. Who cares what other people think about you if you don't have that? When we look down at verse 12, we see him expressing that desire. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. That's what he longs for. This points to the the next thing that true repentance does, true repentance or true repentance desires, true repentance desires change. Desires change. I won't spend long on this one because we alluded to it a lot already. David asks that God would create a clean heart in him and renew a right spirit in him in verse 10 because he has come to a place where he understands his sin and who God is and what is required because of his sin. It is not enough that he simply be acquitted of his sin. He wants God to change him so that he won't sin anymore. He, he hates his sin, and he demonstrates that by saying, I don't want it to be a part of me anymore. He wants his heart to be in line with God's heart. He wants holiness in his life. And he doesn't just want God to make him holy. He wants God to make him want to be holy also. He wants both of those things. One who is truly repentant of their sin does not respond to their cleansing by running straight back to it. Like a, some sort of gang member who gets pardoned for some atrocious crime and then runs right back into his gang the second he's out of the courthouse. The one who is truly repentant of his sin does not want to run back to him. He wants God to give him a heart that hates it. Number three, true repentance desires to be used to help others repent. True repentance desires to be used to help others repent. The desire to be restored isn't just for your own personal gratification when that's what you're desiring from God, to be restored to a relationship with him. The desire to have your heart changed isn't just for your own sake. It is also because you need this change in order to be effective as a tool for God 
to use you to bring others to repentance and belief in the gospel. One who has been changed by God longs to be used by him then to change others. That's what we see in verse 13. He says, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He's not, long, not longing to be involved in the work of turning others to God is a sure sign or it gives every indication that nothing really is taking place in you. How could this amazing work that God has done in you end with you not proclaiming to others the joy that comes from salvation? How could that be? The wonder that comes from knowing how awful sin is, but now through Christ, as David later says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Knowing that, how could that not make you want to share with others? This is what God uses to draw people to himself, joyful, repentant sinners who have been brought into a right relationship with God and hate their sin. They want nothing to do with it anymore, and they want to teach others, teach other transgressors the way of God, the ways of God. That's what he's asking for there. So uh, true repentance also, number four, desires to praise him desires to praise him. And this should seem obvious. That's what's being said in verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. Not just a desire to praise him in our hearts, but with our mouths outwardly commentator and a pastor from, uh, from the early 1800s, William S. Plummer. He has this huge commentary on Psalms. And on, fir- and on verse 14, he just has this one little sentence that I love that describes this perfectly. He says, great mercies call for great songs. And that is so true. It's so true. One of the things that reveals, I think, how much sin still corrupts us, corrupts our hearts, uh, even in the church, is how often we can come in here and sing songs about this amazing gospel and then not kind of really care while we're doing it. That, That should be crazy in light of this. We live, in this, we live in a music-saturated culture, surrounded by music. There are people everywhere devoting so much time and energy to music, to songs, so many songs that are memorized, and you see people all the time singing along in cars, people walking around with earphones on all the time, kind of singing along with that. They start singing along because they are really into the beat, or it's catchy, or something like that, or maybe they even, they even might say something like, I really, those words really kind of speak to me, or they resonate with me, which maybe that's fine, I guess, sometimes, maybe. But, but as Christians, we, as Christians, we don't merely sing for the sake of singing. We have something to sing about. If there was ever anything in all of the world, in all of our history, that deserves to be sung about, it is what we, as believers in Christ, have to sing about. What God has done for us in Christ. 
the righteousness of God and all the implications surrounding that is not something that should be sung about, then there is nothing that should be sung about. Ever. David longs for God to do the work of opening his lips for this purpose so that he may declare his praises. That is his prayer, that the purpose of his mouth might be to declare the praises of God. And that that would be the function of his lips. Implied in this verse then is especially, especially in connection with verse 14, is the understanding that God is so worthy of songs of praise sung aloud to him that if David, for whatever reason, is failing to do this, that God would open his lips and not let it happen any longer. Let me, let me not fail in declaring your praises. Next thing, number five, that we see that true repentance desires is it desires to rightly obey the will of God. Rightly obey the will of God. It leads us to understand what God wants from us. So that's what we kind of see in verses 16 and 17. If you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So remember, all right, so pay attention here. Remember last week when we were talking about Samuel confronting Saul on his sin. Saul just was, he, he just wasn't getting it. If you remember, he wasn't getting it. He thought that he had obeyed. Uh, he thought he obeyed enough at first. And then he was like, okay. And then he was blaming others for the, for the stuff that wasn't quite obedience in his mind. And Samuel had to, he had to essentially say to Saul, look, Saul, you don't get it. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And then he follows that up by telling Saul that he's been rejected as king. And it is only after this that Saul finally says, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And that's so, so big because at first when I was studying that last week, I thought, well, Saul's expression, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. There's a big difference between that and David's that he has sinned against the Lord. It has to do with what Saul was seeing. Saul finally says this, and just a couple verses later in 1 Samuel 15, we find out that it's a fake sham of a repentance because what Saul is actually concerned about is not God, but what the people think of him. Why is this? Why does Saul at least sound like he is repenting? Why does he at least sound like it? Because he understood, listen, because he understood the words of God, but he did not understand the heart of God. So when you see what's going on here, David is expressing the exact, essentially the exact same sentiment that we saw Samuel expressing last week in, in, in that statement. But the, the, the difference is, the difference is David understands the change of heart that is required. And Saul just saw a need for another wannabe pious action. David here understands what Saul didn't get. God did, in fact, because this is true, and this bothered me always about both of these verses. 
God did, in fact, command sacrifices. He commanded them. So Samuel and David are not nullifying the commandment of the Lord. In fact, at the end of Psalm 51, David calls for right sacrifices. So they're not, when they're making this statement, they're not nullifying the commandment of the Lord. What they were saying was that the kind of sacrifices that God demanded are those that come from hearts that understand the purpose for the sacrifices and therefore long to do those commandments. What Samuel was saying is that a desire to obey God in the command to give sacrifices, but with no desire to obey the same God who commanded the sacrifices when he commands you to do other stuff, demonstrates that you have no true love for God. So even when Saul looks like he is repenting, he is still only doing what he thinks he is supposed to be doing. What Saul is essentially hearing Samuel say is, God wants me to do something different. And what David is saying here is that God wants me to want something different. David knows that God has commanded sacrifices. However, the thing that he longs for the most is a heart that is broken over the sin that requires the sacrifices. You see that when when we are truly repentant, we will know how we are supposed to live. Our hearts are in tune with God's heart because we are humble before him. We hate our sin and we long for the same things that he wants, which is a change inside. A final mark of true repentance here, a final desire we see. Those who have a truly repentant heart desire to see God being rightly worshipped everywhere. That's what we see in verses 18 and 19. When he says, when David says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He asks here, he asks God that he would do good in all of Zion, which is generally when Zion, the word Zion generally means Jerusalem, but it can also, uh, it can also mean the whole nation. And David wants the nation of Israel to grow and become stronger. And even more importantly, he wants the hearts of those in his kingdom to be changed into hearts that are broken and contrite. He is clearly wanting this of his people because he just got done talking about what right sacrifices are, what they look like, a changed heart. So when he's saying here that he wants right sacrifices offered, then he is implying that the hearts of the people are changed. He wants his people to be worshiping rightly. This is directly contradictory to what we saw in Saul last week. David sees the people as a means to bring glory to God, and Saul saw them as a means to bring glory to himself. While I'm not one of those who who believes that the church is the new Israel, I don't think you should read that in this thing that we're talking about here. I do think that we can rightly imply a principle that says one who is truly repentant longs for all of God's people to be worshiping rightly and longs for the worship of God to be done rightly. 
and for the growth and strengthening of the church. I think that we can imply that from here, that, that one who is truly repentant has a desire to see the church around him worshiping rightly also. Not just for the sake of the people or for the sake of the church, but because of who God is. This is why we take such issue. This is why we take such issue when we see churches all over the nation that, that are minimizing preaching and minimizing theology and and church discipline and even the word of God in favor of maybe inclusive language and becoming more attractive to the culture. It's not because we think we have a, a different and a better way of doing church. We have a better way that, that works better than theirs. That's, that's not what we're thinking at all. It's because this is the God that we see and we serve. And he's a holy God who hates sin, but he's merciful and loving and made a way to, to exercise his perfect justice and still pardon wicked sinners like David and us. This God deserves to be worshipped rightly. And in light of all that he has done for us, of course we are going to be disgusted when people claim to be honoring him. But they set up their church opposed to what he has revealed in Scripture and act like that stuff isn't really important. Of course that's going to disgust us. Of course we're going to be sickened when churches place the preferences of sinful man over the heart of Almighty God. And it's an act of, and it's a, it's a sign of true repentance in us when that type of stuff disgusts us. And God has made evident throughout Scripture that what is most important to Him is that He be glorified. Therefore, those who would be after his own heart will long for the same, to see God glorified, not just in the churches in our country, but in the churches throughout the world. We want right worship. We want to see everyone worshiping God rightly. Father, I thank you so much for, um, for your word. I thank you for what you show us through this word. Lord, I thank you for giving us a psalm like this that helps us so much when we're trying to express our guilt. When we see the desperate need we have for your mercy. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is marked, that is marked by true repenters, those who have an understanding of what it actually looks like. And that's evident, and it's evident in their lives that they have a right understanding of you. We have a right understanding of our sin and how awful it is. And that will be evident in the, in the ways we live, in the things that we desire, and the things that we give our time and energy for. pray that uh, you would make uh, Grace Church uh, a light in this community about what this type of repentance really looks like. In Jesus' name.
Please stand with us, please.